So, Luigi, welcome to the podcast. Happy How are to you? Here, Chris. Good, good. So, everybody that's uh, that's here listening, Luigi's a good friend of mine. We go back a long time. He was also a, uh, I can say, a student. I've had him in class. We've known each other for probably 13, 14 years or so. When I met him, he was a 120-pound, skinny little little gentleman who was trying to figure out finance. And here we are many years later, and he's a super successful guy. Uh, we've worked together in the past. And I bring, I'm bringing Luigi here to talk with us all about markets. And not just markets, but the challenges in markets, what we can do in the markets to improve them. And the point here, Luigi, is just to have a conversation about it, right? But it would be, it would be really important for, for everybody here to get an understanding of your background, you know, where you started, how'd you get into the markets? Was it easy? Was it hard? What did you find out? So why don't you just take us through your background? That would be, uh, I think that'd be very beneficial for everybody. Sure. And uh, thanks for having me, Chris. Appreciate yeah, it. Of course. Excited to be here and talk with you. So I graduated from what we refer to on Wall Street as a non-target school, uh, Seton Hall University. I think it was uh, 2010. I graduated so right after the financial crisis. Clearly there was uh, uh, not a very robust job market for Wall Street professionals at the time. Um, so I have a number on a post-it near my computer, I believe it says right here, uh, 65, 65 interviews, and 65 rejections from the day I graduated to the day I received my first offer. Um, you know, coming from a, a, a small business family, where, the, you know, I would have been fine regardless. It was not difficult day after day, you know, it was difficult, sorry, uh, getting those rejection letters every day. That email, you opened it up and it's like, uh, we regret to inform you, you know? So it was yeah. a go at it. I finally got my first uh, opportunity at Citigroup. They gave me a shot in the back office. Clearly that's not what I was really uh, trying to go after. I, I thought I was gonna be some big shot banker or trader, or I don't know, anything, but. You know, I took my first job was in Roseland, New Jersey. Um, we were allocating hedge fund P&Ls, frankly. Uh, worked until like midnight. In fact, we got paid overtime. That's how different <laughs> it is than like most, uh, most finance jobs. So I did that for about a year. Um, was able to apply to a sales and trading program internally within the company. Uh, I actually didn't get it, but I made a lot of contacts while I was applying. In fact, it was down to me and one other person I didn't end up getting it. So, you know, you can imagine young kid after all these rejections, you know, another one comes and you're like, geez, man, just keeps happening. So, you know, I, I picked up the pieces, reached out to a lot of the people I met uh, throughout that process. And I took a job in the middle office, which was in their Tribeca office in, in New York City. And now I was on the trading floor. I wasn't trading directly, but I was supporting the whole trading desk on at that point in time it was the uh the interest rate swaps desk so i started to learn all about the swaps and, and interest rate swaps and how companies use that to hedge um some of their exposure from a lending perspective there was a lot of really interesting dynamics going on and now i became the go-to guy from all the actual traders and salespeople with us and as i was doing that i was like okay well same focus in my mind how do i get to the trading desk you know just how do i do this and we had still that same internal program that you had applied to. And it was pretty, 
pretty rigorous to get into that program. You had to have, I believe it was three or four uh, very detailed recommendations um, and unspoken was really, you really need to have somebody going to bat for you that was gonna be in the room. And that was the hard part, right? You need to have some managing director. Yeah. And here I was just some young middle office guy, you know, kind of a thorn in their side, frankly. Uh, and, uh, you know, I was able to meet a few people who helped me out, uh, put in really good word for me and uh, applied. Went through some very difficult interviews, some math questions, you know. Uh, I, th I think the best one is always this. I can't remember if it's a square root of a thousand. Yeah, square root of a thousand. Okay. Why? Yeah, a tricky question. Yeah. You know, you know, when you're nervous and you're not thinking on your feet, you know, most people say a hundred, right? Yeah. And, it's not a hundred, obviously. Yeah. Pretty cool, whatever. So, yeah. uh, was able to, you know, get that right. Got confidence. Started, you know, going through the interviews, and and it uh, ended up getting the pulled into the room, and they told me that I was being accepted. So that was a huge moment for me. Finally, felt as though like, wow, you know, through all of this, I think it was four years. Wow. Wow. Four years it took to get there. It was all, the job all that city. One. And it was all that city group. All Citigroup, yeah. yeah. They, I have to say, Citigroup did a great job um, in terms of mobility within the company. They they really gave us an opportunity. Like if you're, this is what I'll tell anybody: if you are willing to work hard, be creative and resourceful, you can move within the com within these large institutions. You really is that what is that what your success was predicated on? You know, hard work and mobility. I would say. If, if somebody asked me the one thing that, that allowed me to get there, I would say it was resourcefulness. Hmm. I always just found a way to be useful. You know, like I would find a way to, I would find somebody who needed something and I'd be able to provide it at the right time. Hmm. And then I would use that to then have conversations with them and, you know, try, try to, you know, let them know where my situation was and see if they could help. And the other thing I found is a lot of people do want to help, you know, sure, sure. they, they want to help you in your career because they know, like me, you know, like now here I am and I would love to help people because I know how instrumental it was in, in me moving to that program. And then once I got in the program, I was on two different trading desks. I, I traded uh, credit uh, default swaps or credit indices yep. and um, and cash equities. I just always had a, an admiration for equities and, and just wanted to try it. So that was really fun as well. Um, but yeah, that's, that's, that's kind of my journey on uh, Wall Street. I, I ended up... Yeah. So is it fair to say, you know, one, one of the things that you and I always talk about and anyone that knows our relationship knows that the conversation might start out about families, but it always ends up in markets and politics, yeah. right? Almost, almost invariably. And every now and then we talk about religion. And the only thing we probably haven't talked about is, is uh, sex, drugs and rock and roll. But everything else that we're not supposed to talk about, we've sort of talked about, right? Yeah. Um, so is it fair to say you love markets? I do. I mean, what is it? Why? What, what is it about markets and your study of markets that, you know, excites you? It's really interesting. You know, I ask myself that question all the time because, you know, my dad always had a real interest in markets from, you know, just, uh, you know, blue collar, uh, small business guy came over as an immigrant, but just always had, he was always pretty fascinated in it and yeah. talked to me like I was an adult when I was a child. And <laughs> that always got my head spinning on like various things. And I remember I wrote an email when I was like eight years old, recommending 10 stocks to my dad and why, like just random stuff. And it just kept, <laughs> as I got older, I was just always very interested in it. 
And it was really in high school. I think I took an economics course and we had to pitch, pitch a company. And I had to, you know, had to research stocks and stuff like that. And yeah. I just fell in love with it all. I fell in love with, number one, what makes the, the stock price move so dramatically in just a short amount of time, uh, even when the company's fundamentals might not be moving. So there was that component. And it was also the component of markets being somewhat, somewhat of a, a way for people to, frankly, gamble, invest, different time periods. You have pension funds, central banks, all these different entities in the same market and at the end of the day, there's a price and that price moves. And, you know, it is hmm. an excitement for a trader being able to, to go against somebody every day. So, so when you first started your, your, your love for markets, was it about money or was it about just markets? Just the, the fact that you love the concept of it? I think it would be just a lie to say it had nothing to do with money, frankly. I mean, you saw people in the markets that made a lot of money, right? Well, I mean, my dad, his company, you know, it was a tile company. And we did a lot of jobs in a, in a town called Rumson, New Jersey, which is one of the richest towns in New Jersey and yeah. you know, most of Wall Street. And so here I am grouting floors in Rumson, New Jersey and wondering, oh, my God, like looking around this $10 million house and what does this guy do? And yeah. inevitably, it was always they were doing the same thing. And I was like, wow, that sounds cool. And that coupled with the fact that people helped me out in my you know, as I was young to talk about markets and, and, you know, somebody like yourself in college, we yeah. talked a lot about it in that uh, financial crises class. Yeah. One of my favorites. Yeah, me too. And I think I have one. Yeah. I have the book right up here. Kindleberg. Yeah. So yeah. Uh, those things happen and you're just like, okay, this is the path. For me. And I really never had a doubt in my mind that that was the path for me. And, yeah. you know, I, I don't think I've ever, in my mind or, you know, anywhere, love markets less. Gotcha. So, so here you are four or five years later, right? You get the job you want. Yep. You're starting to make real money. Yep. Uh, what, I, what I always refer to as Mars money, right? <laughs> and I, I always try to tell people that uh, those on Wall Street make money like they're Martians. On, and then when they come back to real life, they, they start to understand what right, the rest of the world live like, right? Yeah. So, so, so here you are, right? You're making, you're making good money. You're, I would imagine you're working pretty hard at this time. Yes. How hard? When I first got on the desk, um, I was living um, in West, uh, Hoboken. So yeah. it was not a bad commute, um, but I would be at my desk at 6.30 um, in the morning and, and probably leave, you know, 7.38 most days. Other days have to have to go out uh, with clients and such and be out till one or, or two, get up, do it all over again. So we were grinding pretty hard. The thing about markets that a lot of people don't get is you don't leave your desk all day. So, yeah. you know, if you leave your desk to go to the bathroom, it's like you're walking real quick and you're walking real quick back. There's, there's that, you know, you always get a headache right here by your eye because it's just constant, you know. So it's a different type of, I would say, long day than you know, being a consulting shop or something like that, where you, you, you take a long walk around the building or something like that. It's very different. So 13 to 17 hour days every day, Monday through Friday. Yeah. Saturdays too? Or you guys take off on the weekend? You know, most, on Wall Street's not a lot of work in the weekend. Sometimes uh, you go in on Saturday to prep. If you're like trying to build some sort of model or you're trying to get something, you know, prep for the next week. Guys will do that at home a lot of times. 
So, so tell me about your, your, your experiences there, right? I would imagine some of the smartest, some of the brightest people, some of the most astute, the alpha types are on the desk. This is, this is where it gets really interesting, right? You know, you, you get there, you're like, wow, here I am. Like, finally, after all this, you put your seat down, <laughs> you, you sit down, it's like, hey, uh, you know, somebody looks over to you and they say, hey, you know, uh, you go grab a few coffees. And you're like, okay. And you go do it, you know. And it's like, hey, you know, like, go book those five trades in the system. Okay, you do that. That's cool. And little by little, you start getting some some responsibility. But in the beginning, you're just really just like trying to figure it out, trying to hold it all together. And everything's very fast paced. You got people yelling at you left and right. Um, you know, the trading floor, the way it's set up, you probably got about 150 people on this floor. And, you know, the next guy over to you is three feet, three feet to the other side. And somebody right across from you, two feet in front of you, all rows lined up. And they're all yelling at each other, frankly. It's not as loud as it used to be, but it's still pretty loud. Um, but yeah, you have some some very intelligent people. You also have some, you know, not so intelligent people, frankly, who, you know, uh, are legacy. And you know, Wall Street was a different business before the financial crisis. Oh yeah, the sure, bar, sure the bar to get in there, the bar to succeed was a lot lower. And um, you know, there's still so those people there, but they also have other qualities that have, you know, let them get there. Like for example, some of them. You know, can sell ice to an Eskimo, for example. You know, they, they're or they're very good at you know keeping their accounts up. Others are just you know very, very, very much a type personalities, and you have yeah. you have to be aggressive. You can't, uh, you know, you will get yelled at. Is what I'll say. Like I have been yelled at very loudly as many times as I can remember. <laughs> frankly, it's embarrassing, right? I would imagine so. Here you are. You have a high, you know. You know, you, you have a good view of yourself and you're being essentially degraded in front of all your peers. You know, it happens often. It's hard not to, to fall into a hole when that happens or like, you know, shrivel up or, you know, or whatever the expression is. But it's very difficult. And a lot of people have and those people will never survive there. You have so, so while you're in this while you're in this role, are you improving? Are your skills improving? Yeah, for sure. I mean, there's a lot of things I'm learning initially. Yeah. Like, number one, just the product, you know, uh, especially on the credit desk. It's just the derivatives, learning all about convexity, you know, delta hedging, all those very complicated financial things that you learn in school, but you don't, if you're a finance major, but you don't really understand. Yeah. You know, uh, here you're trading it, you're understanding it, you're really uh, building models to try and capture it. You're talking with clients about it who are mm -hmm. frankly the best, the clients are the best. Like these are, you're talking BlackRock, PIMCO, you know, the top, you know, institutional funds is out there. So, you know, you're getting on the phone with these guys, you're going out with these guys or, or gals and, and you're, and you're trying to make yourself stand out, frankly. Gotcha. 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 They can trade with Citigroup, they can trade with Goldman. They don't care. Yeah. So, so here you are, right? 20, whatever, what is it? 26, 27? Uh, at that point, uh, it was probably 23. 23. And, you, you know, you obviously are improving. Things are going your direction. Life's good. Um, what about the other people on the desk, right? What, what was the, what were their characters like? You know, were they, were they good people? Were they, you know, uh, like tell us just a little bit about your coworkers. Sure. So, I mean, it varied depending on where you were in, in yeah. the company. 
I mean, I met some of the best people that I know there. Like, I still talk to to this day all the time. And then I met people who, you know, frankly, I, I don't care for very much at all. You know, you had a lot of personalities. You had very, very aggressive people. You know, they, they did a lot of extracurricular activities. You know, you had a lot of people who were. What does that mean? What do, what, do you, what do you mean they were aggressive and they engaged in extracurricular activities? Yeah, I mean, a lot of people do drugs. You know, there's a lot of Adderall usage. You know, to keep, like I mentioned, you know, 13 to 14 hours in front of a screen needing to be at the top of your game at all times. You know, a lot of people use Adderall for something like that to focus. Yeah. You need to focus, frankly. Uh, Not too dissimilar to a professional athlete using steroids. Exactly. Yeah. You get the edge. Yeah, especially when you went out till 1 a.m. It's difficult to be <laughs> yeah. completely focused on a screen. You know, your, your brain gets tired after a while. And your body gets tired. So, you know, I, I never engaged in that because it's just, I just have no interest in it. And, you know, sometimes I felt like it put me at a disadvantage. I'm sure it did put you at a disadvantage. You know, also a lot of these guys, they live across the street from the office. You know, I had a little commute, you know. And there's, you know, there's certain things that you choose in your life, which... You know, I, I guess you could look at it as they're all in or this is the life that they want. Yeah. Um, but yeah, there, there's a lot of stuff like that in terms of the personalities. I mean, like I said, you can be called an asshole, douchebag, you know, you're stupid. How could you mess this up? Uh, Incredible, right? Incredible. Really loud. Like, you know, I've seen I've seen a lot of slamming a desk break. We used to have a phone right here at the, at the desk and you just hook it back. And I've seen a lot of people hold that black phone to jam it and fly up in pieces. And then all of a sudden they'd sit down, turn around and be like, hey, can you tell off tech I need a new phone? Oh, my that, God. That probably happened like five times, five times uh, a, a year or so. It was pretty often. Yeah. And, but, you know, there was, there was some also really cool things. Like when people got promoted to managing director, they bought lobsters and steaks for the whole floor. I mean, think about how much that costs. Like. One guy gets promoted and he, and he buys lobsters and steaks for 150 people. You know, there was some good, like, you know, uh, uh, things like that. We had good softball game, you know, like there was a lot of camaraderie, you know, a lot of joking, a lot of laughing. But, you know, frankly, it was, uh, it's, it's definitely a boys club, I'll say. Yeah. Yeah. I would, ima- I would imagine so. So who was, who was helping you, you know, develop yourself? Like, were there people there? Like, okay, Luigi, let's talk about your profession. Let's, Let's figure out how to get you to the next level. Um, you know, there were some people along the way that I met that were, that were good like that. Yeah. Um, for the most part, I think that that's something that the company has gotten better at, you know, more recently. Yeah. Wall Street's definitely gotten, like, I think now they're wearing jeans on the trading floor. Like, they definitely, it's starting to change a little bit. Sure. Um, but yeah, not many people were really, like, focused on helping me so much. There was, there was a few people along the way that were. Yeah, uh, but it was really for me. Number one, I love the market, so like I went there with an excitement every day. Like I'd be looking at my phone at midnight and I'd be like, "Oh, futures is down like 150 points. I wonder why." Like, you know, just like trying to write about it. All these notes on my phone. This way, the next morning I could regurgitate it very quickly and show that I was on top of my game and yeah, and be able to trade on it. Frankly, so it was. It, you have to love it. I tell people that all the time. Like, there's no way you can go in and do that job at a high level if you're just if you don't really have to care for that stuff. Yeah. So, all right. So, so here we are, you're, you're working hard, you're, you're, you're growing, you're, you're improving. I would assume you're also making more money as time goes on. 
What about, what did you see like as it relates to the, how the markets work? Mm-hmm. Was it, you know, was it efficient? I guess his question was one of my questions. And, you know, did you see the, did you see any of the behaviors being a little bit less than, you know, ethical? And you don't have to divulge too much. Just, you know, oh, sure, what's, yeah. your, what's your um, general idea, general sense here? I mean, there was, there was some unethical things that definitely we saw along the way. I mean, I'd say that a lot of that, a lot of, a lot of that's getting cleaned up. Um, yeah because the regulatory environment got a lot tougher and it forced some of the banks to, to really crack down on some stuff. But you had some of these illiquid markets where people marking their book at the wrong price. This way they don't really show a loss. You know, I mean, frankly, a lot of the incentives were such that they have to do that. Not have to, but they were incentivized to do that. Sure, sure. Um, so you had a lot of that, you know, that from the perspective of, of, of unethical behaviors. But in terms of inefficientness, you know, I tell this story all the time. Like, uh, I think it was, I think the stock, I can't remember the name of the stock. It was Lionel, the lithium company. And, you know, we had an order on the desk, it was a stock order. And basically, I was going to buy, I don't know, 10 days worth of volume today. It was just stock charts like this all day, straight up, because I'm buying it, you know? And at the end of the day, without it knowing, I had a friend who came to me who is not involved in markets. He's like, Hey, I own this stock line Dell. You see how much it's up today. Like, and I took a step back and I said to myself, wow, like, you know, how many times I tried to shorting a stock that was going straight up all day. Little that I know it's just one guy with a big order, just pushing it all day long, you know, like, and there was one time on the desk, we had a new analyst who had a fat finger, pushed the stock up about 15% intraday. Right. And it goes straight back down. Sometimes now you're trading and you're looking at margins like, oh my God, what happened? It can be something so stupid, right? And you, and you think it's so deep and, and, and liquid and efficient. And, and in some respects it is over an amount of time, but in the short term, it, it's really not. You know? Yeah, yeah. And, and, and institutional guys and, and desks can move, can move prices. Oh yeah, I moved, I moved a lot of stuff very easily. Yeah, so so it's not it's not always that the market's being moved or pro- stock prices are, you know, um, the efficient market hypothesis, right? So that 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 notion, yeah. So, so 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 let's talk about that, right? So you don't think the market's efficient from a, you know, for for those that are for those that are listening, this idea of efficient market hypothesis is that stocks have all information baked into the price, right? So you don't you don't you don't believe that to be true. Um, you know, or, or if they do all, uh, it could be the other way around, right? Like they have more information priced in than is actually divulged. And a lot of times that's the case, Mm. right? You know, uh, you can have a lot of hedge funds who, you know, had a meeting with management and, you know, got the nudge that, I don't know, next quarter is going to be good because they're, you know, a top holder in the company. Yeah. That's a lot of times. And so, They'll be buying it up, buying it up, buying it up. So the stock is essentially rallying while all its peers are not. Relative performance is high and you know that something's going on. You don't know what. And then the news comes out and it goes down. That's not efficient, right? Because that means, you know, that means that somebody knew something that the public didn't. And that happens a lot. And and it also goes the way that you mentioned where, you know, uh, the stock doesn't price in everything. That happens all the time. Yeah. 
So yeah, markets are not efficient from that perspective. They're efficient over a more intermediate term. Like they're actually very efficient in an intermediate term, but in the near term or short term, they're not efficient at all. Yeah. In the short term, is it fair to say that, you know, people with right intentions who do their homework can get totally wiped out of the stock? Yes. Yes. Very much so. Uh, I will say this. One thing I can tell people is that you should not day trade or you should not trade short term, you know, unless you have a very good understanding of markets, you should not trade options. All these things that I see that are going on today, Davey Day Trader, you know, like uh, Dave Portnoy and all of them, you know, I, I love it. I think it's exciting. I think it's fun, but you are at a complete disadvantage and you have no idea what's going on behind the scenes there because, <laughs> like I said, one guy like me can come in and have a big order and just crush your whole trade, especially if it's an options trade because of the time. Yeah. And, 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 your, and your incentives and the reason that you're doing it is totally different than the motivations of an investor who is thinking about, you know, maybe maybe I'll invest in this stock for either maybe a long-term gain or maybe I'll invest in this stock because I think the short-term fundamentals are pretty good. You come in and you're like, wait, wait a second, let me just, let me just devastate this person's world and take all their money and run, right? In, in so many respects. Yeah, and especially when it comes to derivatives, especially because the house always wins in derivatives. The game is structured such that the house wins. Whereas casino, stock, casino. It's very much like a casino, you know? Yeah. Um, buying, a, you know, going long a call or going long a put, you know, uh, the other side of that trade is much yeah. more than not. That's why you pay a premium for it, you know? Sure. And most of the time those premiums result in zero. I think, I think the number is 95% of the time they result in zero. They wiped uh, out. Uh, yeah, because, and you pay it the other side. So it's an insurance. So it's, it's good if you're using it to hedge against something else, but if you're just naked trading options, you're really at a disadvantage. Bad, bad idea. Bad idea. Bad, especially for the retail person yeah. who's not, not in the institution. All right. Got it. You're Got gambling. It. You're gambling. So, so look, man, here, here you are. You're, you're becoming like super astute, like Superman in many respects of markets, right? Because you get to get to see it all. And I don't mean that in a, in a negative way. I mean, I, I, you know, I, I totally respect your opinion. But here, here you are, you're a student of economics, and you loved economics. And now you're a student and you're, you're learning your practical understanding and the theoretical understanding of how markets work. What was going through your mind, right? Here, here I am thinking, you know, markets, America, United States, wonderful opportunity, markets drive everything. And now you're starting to see, maybe there's, a, maybe there's some cracks in the armor here. Is that fair or no? Yeah, I mean, I, I think so. I mean, I, I'm not there today. So I think it's realistic to say that that's, that I was clearly, I don't know if the word's underwhelmed, but uh, I, maybe I had put it up on such a high pedestal because it was something yeah. that I felt like I had to achieve to get there. But once I got there, I looked around and I says, you know, I don't think anybody here is all that much, you know, all that, that impressive. I mean, they were very, very impressive people, especially on the client side, especially on the buy side. That's where the top talent goes, frankly. Yeah. Uh, but, you know, on the sell side, it was a few things. Number one, I saw a lot of it getting replaced, you know, from an electronic perspective, that a lot of that happening, that concerned me. And, you know, in addition, I was concerned with what was going on from, from a regulatory perspective. The game had changed post-crisis mm. because of the Dodd-Frank bill. That had changed a lot for us. We weren't able to take as much risk as we were before. So, you know, if you're a market maker and, and you have a nice book, you know, a nice size book and you're, 
you're able to take some propositions or proprietary positions, that's cool. But if you're not able to do that, it's less fun, right? You know? Yeah, sure. It's cool, it's cool to like, you know, try and trade the market size and make money. Like, you know, hey, you know, I'll sell my stock to this guy and then buy it back from another guy lower. That's yeah, cool. yeah. But, you know, you want to be coming up with trade ideas. You want to be, you know, uh, developing ideas and pitching them and yeah, okay. that they succeed. That's what's fun. And, you know, I guess I had an opportunity where I could have went to the buy side because that probably fit what I wanted to do more. But I think you get a little burnt out. Uh, yeah. So, so tell us when now, now you're into this for four or five, six years, right? I think I was at the company for eight years. Eight years. So you're in this for eight years. I mean, you're putting in 2,000, 3,000 hours a year. You become an expert, right? You know, if the, if the rule of thumb is is 10,000 hours to become an expert, you put that in and, and some, right? Mm-hmm. So what did you see as the fundamental problem with markets? Um, if, there, if there was one or two issues that well, you I could think, spot. Like I said, I, I, think, I, think the, I think a lot of the issues stem from, from the Federal Reserve. Frankly, I do believe that. I think that they have distorted markets. Um, I think a lot of, I think markets will function pretty well on their own without intervention, but, but that's not the case today. Yeah. Frankly, I mean, the law, you know, the federal reserve is buying pretty much all United States treasuries. I mean, that whole market is being manipulated. It's the largest, it's the deepest market that exists and it's being manipulated. And frankly, you know, the treasury 10 year treasury yield or the twos tens curve, that is an indicator for a lot of economic things or even mortgages or, you know, all these things are set on those yields. So if that's being manipulated, everything's being, being manipulated. So are you, you referring mostly to like uh, uh, easing the markets through low rates? Is that what we're talking about? Low rates, but even more so um, purchasing of securities, right? The Federal Reserve yeah. has gone and they bought mortgage-backed securities. They're buying a ton of treasuries. Now, now they're buying corporate bonds. Yeah. They're buying Apple's bonds, like uh, an, an investment grade, corporate debt is trading at like 3% yield, 3% yeah. yield, like, you know, what's the risk? And it's, it creates a lot of bad incentives for corporations because what happened was they would just kept issuing debt to buy stock, you know? And so when you issue debt to buy stock, right? It makes your earnings per share go up, right? Cause there's less stock outstanding, but now your debt has gone up. So the airlines are a perfect example, right? Bad situation hits with COVID. These companies have a ton of debt because they've been buying back all this stock. And now they have no ability to take on additional debt when they actually need it, when there's an actual crisis. Yeah. Got to step in, loan the money. And, you know, here we are. This is not capitalism. So you're saying, so again, to, to, I guess to put it in the most easiest terms, you're suggesting that the way that the Fed is operating, they're providing too much liquidity to the marketplace. Um, that fair? Yeah, yeah, I think that's fair. Right, and and because of this liquidity, I think the wrong places. I think is more important. Okay, to the wrong places. So so corporations now have the opportunity because they're they're flooding the market with with all of this uh, equ- with all of this um, I should say quanti- 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 quantifiable easing, right? Okay. Qualitative easing, right? So as they're flooding the market with all of this easing, corporations are now getting access to all of this debt. And they're using this debt to buy back the stock. Stock prices go up. Everybody thinks the market's doing wonderfully, yep. right? Meanwhile, underneath the company is this 
zombie. It's a, it's what, a zombie? We call them zombie companies. Zombie, okay, a zombie company, right? Um, I guess that means it's about to, something bad's gonna happen to it, right? They're, they're like sleepwalking. They're not trying to grow. They're not trying to research and develop. They're just gotcha. trying to figure out how to manip- financially engineer their earnings. Right, got it. Okay, so so what you're saying to what you're saying to me is that the market, you're not going so far as saying it's rigged, but there's a part of the market that is showing that the market is growing. Everybody thinks, wow, this is awesome. Market's going up, our stock's going up, but bubbling underneath the surface is yeah. this ugly idea that there's tremendous amount of debt on the balance sheet of these corporations. Not too dissimilar, right, to 2007, 2008, whereas the, the debt holders at that point in time were, were mainly consumers on the real estate side. That's right. Right? That's right. And, yeah. and it, it seems like this is going on continuously every 10 years, right? Every pro- 5, 10, 15 years, we have a problem related to debt, right? That, I think there's a book that you read from Stephanie Kelton about MMT, yeah. monetary theory. Yeah. That's coming. That's here. You know, this is this is the way we're going. There's 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 no doubt about it. There's no re- even reason to fight it, frankly. Um, and that idea is basically, you know, we'll just print as much money. The Fed will, you know, issue bond, uh, uh, buy up the, all, all the bonds until we can get inflation high enough. Right. That's the idea. That's that is going to happen. And frankly, I think that's a cool experiment to try, but not when you're giving the money to corporations like Apple or sitting on. $300 billion of cash. You know, yeah. I much, I much rather they take a helicopter and drop the money in my house, frankly, or, you know, uh, find some, you know, interstate highway or interstate rail, you know, let's do something interesting, not just give it to companies that don't need it, just to lower their yields. Well, come on, you're, you, you, you're going to tell me you're good with that idea? No, I mean, frankly, I'm not good with it. But I also, I think if, if I've learned anything from this experience, I've also, uh, realistic enough to know that this house of cards has to be sustained for everybody's uh for everybody's well-being you know you have assets i have assets a lot of people listening here probably have stocks bonds real estate and you know if it is not the federal reserve u.s government is not going to allow that house of cards to fall so we're not going to pay back the debt we're not going to raise interest rates really high we're not going to do those things. We're going to keep devaluing the currency. We're going to keep issuing more debt. We're going to keep trying to give money to the public because we have to. There's nothing we can do at this point. It's it's out. It's the cat is out of the. Uh, how, do you, how do you say that? That the cat is out of the barn. I don't know. Yeah, something like something's that. out of the so, barn. And, and there's nothing <laughs> to do now. I mean, nothing, and you saw it with COVID. You saw it. you saw how fragile we were as a society that we frankly couldn't last a month without income. This is an income uh, income society, and you know because we have so much debt, because our cost of living is so high, because we don't have really, you know, uh, government subsidies by way of healthcare and those type of things, we are so fragile to not working, you know, to not generating income, and what you saw essentially in COVID was was a replacement income had to be generated by the government. I love that. So so what you're what you're saying is that we live paycheck to paycheck. At least, at least the middle class and the and the lower income classes, right? And, and I really love this idea of the K-shaped recovery that's going on. I don't love it, but I, I, I like the way they illustrated it. You have this K-shape. You know, the the super rich is, is is succeeding very much after this COVID situation, and the poor is just getting destroyed. I mean, their jobs have gotten taken out. You know, 
Uh, yeah. they're, they're frankly not, they don't own assets. And when you don't own assets and the Fed's job is to perpetuate asset inflation, that means the thing you want to buy keeps going up in price and you don't have it. And you right? can't get it. And now you can't get it. But even worse than that is the inflation that they're generated also hits at the consumer level. So you'll yeah. see the price of corn go up. You'll see the price of you know oil go up. All these things will start to go up, and then it hits them also from their paycheck perspective. Yeah, so man, it's, it's a, really just a screw the little guy thing. Yeah, and it's just a constant perpetuation, right? Um, no way out of it. Well, there there is, but we don't want it. We don't want to face it, right? Well, that's, yeah, there's no like like you saw it, right? We we could not let an airline go bankrupt. Yeah. We just couldn't, we couldn't do it. So, so remember back to 2007, we had 2008, right? Remember back to our class, you and I and other people such as Evan and, and others, we were talking about um, this crisis. And the crisis clearly was that we're going to bail out the banks. Yep. So we let some banks fail. We let the Bear Stearns fail. And, but then we bailed out JP Morgan and we bailed out uh, Bank of America or uh, Merrill Lynch. Huh? Lehman was the one that failed. Oh, right. Lehman, Lehman fell. Oh, Bear, Bear Stearns, too. Yeah, they were forced to buy out with J.P. Morgan. Fair, fair, Five fair. Right? Good stuff. Fair. But, but what was interesting about that is who owns the stock of the banks? Right? Uh, so pension, state. Pension and, and, and wealthy, right? And the well, people higher, higher income, higher middle class, upper middle, upper, upper class. It's interesting, right? Most, a lot of people own the bank stocks or the people work for the banks. That's how they get paid their bonuses. Yeah. The bank stock. But if we let the whole house of cards just come down, right? Mm -hmm. Because I think about this all the time and you, and you and I talk about this all the time. But if we just allowed the entire market to just fail, let every single bank fail. I mean, it would be Armageddon in many respects. Oh, yeah. But yeah. who's going to who's going to lose the most? The rich or the poor? The rich, the rich right? Because the poor, frankly, it's not much, it's not as much of a drastic change for them. Beautiful, right? So, so if you're losing it, if you're losing a job that is minimal income, what what are you losing? You're losing ten bucks an hour. Yeah. Right. That could be. But that could be replaced. But if my entire four hundred one k gets wiped out. That's a major change, right? So, so what does it do, right, Luigi? It, it takes it takes the the income differential between the rich and the poor, and it gets us a little bit closer, right? Yeah. But what what do we do? We constantly do in the United States is the politicians sell us on this idea, and it 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 bugs the hell out of me, right? But these politicians, we say, okay. What we're going to do is this. We're going to bail out the banks because if we don't bail out the banks, Armageddon is going to happen. Everybody's going to lose their job. And it makes it sound like it's it's in the best interest of the lower income classes and the middle class. Yeah. That's exactly. And in reality, it's not. It's, well, <laughs> it's interesting. It's not in the long, in the short term. Yes, it's very much in, in everybody's interest to keep it all together. Yeah. Because it, it, it's, it's not thinking two steps down the line it's thinking one step down the line like oh my god if Citigroup goes bankrupt Citigroup employs 200,000 people they're all not going to have a job that's the thinking right yeah however if we keep bailing out Citigroup right and we keep increasing inflation for all the whole uh, lower middle class then their purchasing power is going down and they really don't have any money but they have a job so they're working but really can't build anything how is that any good you right. know Right. And at the same time, we made the banks bigger, a lot bigger. 
Indeed. We them all. So, and, and then what we see, right? Remind me, right? So after 2008, as soon as all of these, you know, I remember the, uh, the, TARP, the TARP funding and, and all of these types of funding mechanisms that we put in place, stock market came back in two years, yeah. right? And it went higher than it was pre the crisis. And, and who wins there? So it was the rich that win again, right? So the rich and those that own the stocks continue to grow in wealth and the people that are middle class and lower middle class and, 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 and lower income classes are pretty much wiped out. They're wiped out. And they're, they're still trying to figure out how to pay uh, the teaser rate on their mortgage that, that they were sold in 2007, 2006 to buy a Sure, house. right. So, so is, is this part of, is this part of the, the, the problems that we're seeing in the marketplace? You're, you're calling it a Federal Reserve issue, and I, and I don't disagree with you. That's definitely one of the issues. Federal Reserve is, is, is just a fascinating institution. Right. We act like it's been around forever. You know, it's really been around since the 30s, frankly. And yeah. uh, they're unelected, right? They're not elected yeah. officials, but they make such important decisions. Yeah. And, and there's, in my opinion, their job description is to be God. I kind yeah. of, because they need to figure out where inflation's going, where growth's going, where all these things set rates that markets would have set anyway. I love that God, the God of markets. That's what the God do. of markets is the is the Federal Reserve. Interesting. There are so many studies showing how terrible they are at forecasting markets, yeah. and, and and there are hedge funds that their sole um, strategy is to front run the Fed. That is the everything that they do is to front run the Fed, and they make a lot of money doing it. Sure. And the markets do this now, but the Fed does. And this was a hard lesson for me to learn. The Fed does impact markets. Yeah. You know, I, I have shorted many markets that have not worked that well by trying to, so quote unquote, fight the Fed. You cannot fight the Fed in the short term. You cannot. You will lose. However, but the Fed, you know, the problem with the Fed is that they're completely distorting markets. Like, for example, when we go to uh, the CARES Act uh, for COVID, was it? I think it was $3 trillion, something. Uh -huh. Who do you think buys that debt? Yeah. The Fed. I mean, there's no, there's no, re, there's no uh, coincidence that the head of the Treasury Secretary, the Treasury Secretary Stephen Mnuchin, is an ex-bond trader. That's not a mistake. You know, yeah. there, there is clear intent to, you know, uh, use these markets, these Treasury markets, uh, and to manipulate them in, in, a, in a very, um, you know, in the right fashion, such that it doesn't, it's not as obvious. You know, um, the Fed's just going to buy this debt until they can't. You know, and at the moment it's okay because the United States dollar is the reserve currency of the world. If it strong, was not, strong, yeah. yeah if, it, if it was not the reserve currency of the world, it'd probably be like the Argentinian peso. I mean, yeah. we're, we're, we've really changed our. You won't be here. You won't. You won't hear about paying down debt for the next ten years, in my opinion. Nobody's even going to talk about it. It's no. not an option. No, not especially in this political climate. It's just not possible. Yeah. So, okay, so I get it. Ponzi scheme over here, which I call a Ponzi scheme, probably an incorrect term, but there's a scheme over here. And, and by the way, you know, I'm not totally anti the Fed. Yes. Um, I prefer, I prefer it does nothing at all, right? Because it really can't do much now anyway. We're, the I rates are as nice, low as they get. I think they're nice people. They're smart people. They have, well, they have good intentions. I just think they were, you know, the whole idea of them 
was set I don't up. know. I don't know about good intentions. I don't know. I mean, I think these guys really. I don't. I don't. I don't think their hearts are in the wrong place. I don't think it's their intentions to screw the world. I just think it's we need to keep this thing together. Yeah. And and you know that's what has them buying literally Apple bonds. Like yeah. I can't get over the fact that they're buying Apple's bonds who has three hundred. I'm sorry, $300 billion in cash on the balance sheet. Why does it need the Federal Reserve to buy its bonds? Yeah. Yeah, fair, fair, fair. Um, so listen, I want to bring up something else on markets that I talk about probably more so than you talk about, but I want to get your thoughts about it, right? Um, you know that, and, and I should let everybody know, you and I both work in the valuation world. Yeah. Right, so... You know, Luigi left Wall Street. He's, he, he now does valuation work, very similar to me, where we value mostly private institutions. And one of the things that you and I talk about is the size of these corporations and the lack of competition, right? We, we, live, in a, we live in a marketplace that's really not a competitive market. It's, a, it's an oligopoly market, right? There's these market structures. Maybe we could say it's mono, mono, mono why am I forgetting my words? Not monopoly, not oligopoly, but monopolistic, right? Where it's maybe 12, 13, 14 types, 15 types of firms. Um, and the competition is, is not there anymore, right? Like it was, you know, when we read Adam Smith and, you know, Wealth of Nations, or we read him in, you know, the theory of moral sentiments or some of the other earlier, you know, economists in this country that were, were so important in establishing the market system, right? Yep. It was predicated on a competitive market. Yeah. And here we are with probably, I would suggest it's not a competitive market. Does that have anything to do with some of the issues we see? It's interesting, and it's a phenomenal question, right? Because capitalism today is almost a bad word, I think. I really do, in this country, yeah, I think it's sure. a bad word. And it's so interesting to me because at the end of the day, what you see here is not capitalism. You know, uh, like you just it's cronyism. Yeah, what you just mentioned. You know, in order for you know capitalism to work, you need a competitive market. Yeah. And uh, you know, I don't know about you, but I have one internet provider that I can select. How is that going to be an efficient market? How am I going to get service? You know, all those types of things. So that's not a competitive market. But so many others are not competitive markets. And when you don't have a competitive market, which you're missing. The, the need for each company to get better than the other. You're missing the need for them to drive down prices. Yeah. You're missing the need for them to do all the things that they have to do in order to stay competitive, still exist, continue on in the world. Yeah. And when that doesn't exist, you don't have capitalism, right? And so what you have here is this quasi-capitalism, quasi-government you know, entity, or just like large private institutions that you know aren't being forced to compete. One being the banks, right? Um, they're not being forced to be airlines, right? We all know the airline services are not very good. Do you? Feel, yeah. I'm, I feel like I'm, you know, I feel like a you know third class citizen when I sit in an airplane half the time, and that's yeah. partly because you know uh, there's a lot of subsidies that keep these companies alive. Let's talk about education. You know, I mean, a lot of those institutions, there's subsidies keeping them alive. And if there weren't those subsidies, maybe they'd be forced to make changes that they wouldn't, that they're not forced to make right now. Yeah, competitive change. Yeah, they would have yeah. to, you know, lower their cost structure or innovate, you know, yeah. do all these things that can keep them alive. And I think what you're going to see now in the future is the old, you know, old dark horses, you know, 
the banks are now going to be replaced with the Googles, the Microsofts, the Facebooks. They'll be the new dark horses that, you know, will own the whole market and will slowly but surely stop innovating. And it's a natural problem with, uh, with capitalism where you do get these institutions that get too large. Yeah. But, you know, in, in, in our earlier history, right, some of our founders knew about the American founders, U.S. founders. Uh, again, early economists, I, I, always, I always love Adam Smith, one of my favorites, would suggest that there is a time and place for the government. Yeah, sure. And that time and place for the government is, uh, he would probably argue, is not necessarily to run the Fed, but it is to make sure that companies do not become too large. Yes. And to ensure that there's competition in the marketplace, right? Yeah. So when we think about the Sherman Act and some of these other other acts that we used against the Rockefeller family to break up those businesses or the yeah. bells of the world, right? I don't know. I just keep keep coming back to where, and this is mostly the Federal Trade Commission, we keep allowing these larger and larger corporations to, to amass themselves, which good luck trying to compete against Google. Good luck trying to compete against Facebook. It's not going to happen. I mean, maybe it could happen, but very unoften is it going to happen. Yeah, it can't happen. I mean, they have unlimited resources, frankly. Yeah. They have the Federal Reserve buying up their debt, lowering their, their debt costs so they can yeah. continue to issue debt and do whatever they want. I mean, if you're a small business in this country, they, the cards are stacked against you. I mean, especially- So that's interesting. Uh, you know, that's like, that's, a, that's an incredible insight, right? You just said the same thing that we said with, with the Federal Reserve. The Federal Reserve issue, who gets hit? Middle class, middle class, lower income families. Now, when we think about the Federal Trade Commission, who's getting hit again, right? The small business owner. Good luck competing. I, how can you compete with, uh, you know, let, let's just take a good example. Let's say you own, you know, uh, let's, let's use a tile company like my dad. How can you compete with Home Depot? How can you compete? They have unlimited resources. They can enter any market they want. They can, uh, you know, uh, uh, import from any country, you know, they can take losses that don't matter, you know, sure. how are you supposed to compete with them? Sure. You know, and, and frankly, what's interesting is COVID perpetuated this, you know, which stores were allowed to be open during this whole shutdown it was yeah. really the large companies and you had supermarkets, you had Home Depot, Walmart. Meanwhile, you know, a lot of small businesses were forced to shut down. So is it fair to say, maybe not intentionally, not the, government, the, the government was picking winners and losers. Yes. And, and that's been the problem, I think, that's really accelerated over the past, I would say, 30 years in this country. We've had a you know, large acceleration with the government picking, whether intentional or not, picking winners and losers. And you've had companies just amassing more and more power and competition going down. When competition goes down, there's less innovation. You know, prices go up uh, or stay flat when they should have gone down. Yeah. Uh, you know, and, and then you'll get, you know, these companies, they, they pay a thousand dollar bonus when they get the tax cut and it'll be like good press. But at the end of the day, I mean, they, what they netted was totally different. Like, we, you know, I can go into the whole road about that corporate tax cut that we had. You know, yeah. Ago. But that, I think that really helped large corporations. And the stock of course, it, of course, of course it did. Right. Uh, and that maybe helps the middle class and smaller smaller yeah. businesses. But let's be honest, who's getting the lion's share of that? It was the, it was the corporations. Yeah. I mean, the Federal Reserve buying up the debt of these large companies, to me, is, is a road that we went down that we'll never turn back from. 
it, incredible. It, it, it's incredibly next will be equities one day. We'll see. Um, like once again, we talk about the airlines. We kept hearing that we can't let the airlines fail. What, we, what they were really saying is we can't let the equity holders of airlines fail. Think about that, right? Like yeah. there's a reason that, I mean, Delta did it after 9-11. They went bankrupt. Yeah. They still continued operations in chapter 11. People still flew the planes. It's just that the equity holders went to zero. Yeah. Why can't we let that happen after for the last three or four years, they've been buying back stock this way. Their earnings per shares were higher. This way, compensation packages were higher. I mean, that is the worst thing I've ever seen, frankly, because we've essentially given them bailout money when they've done bad actions. For the bad bad incentives, right? Incentives. We have incentive. We have incentive problems everywhere, right? Capitalism can't work if you don't let equity holders fail. They don't learn lessons. You got to let the market run its course. Is that yeah. fair? Yeah. And, mean, and the thing is, we wouldn't have lost airlines. Yeah. We wouldn't have lost them. They would have still existed. You know, whoever bought Delta stock for the reasons that they were buying it. You know, for example buybacks yeah it would have failed maybe they'll learn less in the future that that's not a that's not a road to success that's not how you increase equity value yeah you have to let people fail right and and once again if we allowed it to fail who's going to fail it's going to be the rich that are going to fail or the or the upper upper middle class that are going to fail they're going to lose most but you can't let them fail chris at this point the system is so interconnected that Failure of some companies leads to failure to others and leads to stocks going down. Leads to of course, of course, it's systemic. I, I, I get it. The state, the state's pension fund holds all these assets. I mean, it, it goes so deep today. It's so interconnected that once again, like that, those old ideas, they're, they're romantic ideas at this point in my mind. Yeah. It just can't happen. So, so in, in many respects, we're currently living in a, uh, I don't want to say socialism because that's a totally different definition, yeah. but we're definitely living in a society where, where we're sort of in a system where the government is looking after society through capital mechanisms or through market yeah. mechanisms that they're manipulating them. Well, it's markets that aren't allowed to fail, which aren't, you know, it's capitalism that doesn't allow companies to fail. It's markets that will continue to be bailed out. I mean, when you have that, you don't have capital. Isn't it going yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so I, you know, it's funny because I never thought about it in this way. It, what, I'm, what I'm thinking is it's, it's sort of a different type of socialism. It is. And, and what I mean by that is it's, it's, it's rather than, probably, rather, rather than the government, rather than the government giving out, giving out cheese, right? The government's just saying, look, rich companies, we're just going to keep, we'll just keep bailing you out as long as you keep everybody else employed. Corporate, it's corporate socialism. Yeah, it's awful. What an awful place to I, be. If we're going to do that, you might as well give me the cheese. <laughs> a little bit, give me the cheese. I mean, if we're going to do that. So look, I have one other question for you on when it comes to markets, because it's something that it just bothers me. I know it bothers you. Um, or I think it bothers you. Is this idea that now corporations have endless amounts of money mm -hmm. to fund political yes. uh, entities, right? So we can now put money, almost endless amounts of money to fund the Trump campaign, endless amount of amounts of money to fight to, to fund the Biden uh, Harris campaign. Yeah. That creates another awful incentive, does it not? Well, it comes full circle there, right? I mean, you know, that's, that's not, I don't think that's a mistake, frankly, you know. Uh, I, I, what do you mean by that? That's, that's a loaded, 
I think there's a, I think there's a reason certain companies make it to the top. You know, I think they're, you know, they're, they're, they're smart. Sure. You know, they're, they're, they're operating in the right way from the perspective of the way the game is structured. Yeah. Call it a game because it is a game. You know, uh, this, the way we built society today is, is these corporations are incentivized to get politicians to let them do what they want. You yeah. know, you get so powerful, so strong that, you know, it's almost like you're sitting at the top of a cliff and the only way is down. And so now your only incentive is to perpetuate your ability to survive. Yeah. And, and if you're a CEO of a you know, Fortune 500 company that sees no way of growing because they're just too large, frankly, uh, you know, your, your whole game is, all right, how do I keep the earnings per share up? This way my comp package stays high, my compensation package. What you do is you go over to elected officials and, 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 you, and you make deals. I mean, and you grease the skids and you put in regulation. Put in right? regulations that keep you uh, to succeed. You keep sure. your business, you put a moat around your business. Sure. We see that all the time. I yeah, mean, I, think it, I think it was Jacob Bernoulli, right? Uh, I don't know if you, if you remember him, but Jacob Bernoulli was a, a mathematician, a statistician who said, you know, people are more afraid of failing than they are um, investing in a future opportunity, right? It's kind of like what uh, Daniel Kahneman said, right? Yeah, yeah, same same idea, right? We're more we're more afraid of getting struck by lightning when in reality, being struck by lightning is highly unlikely. We're risk averse. So so because we're risk averse, right? We have this large corporation. I'm not going to take my money and go try to grow at ten percent a year when I could grow at three and live a conservative world, make lots of profits. What I'm going to do is I'm going to go protect myself and go buy some politicians. Yeah. Right. Or I'm going to go buy some some regulation. I'm going to give some money to Trump. I'm going to give some money to Biden. I'm going to give some money to fill in the blank. Right. And as we continue to do that, we continue to prop up regulation, furthering, right, furthering this oligopoly type of marketplace. Yeah. And it all starts to come together. And it looks like, holy crap, this is a really bad system. Listen, take a step back. I mean, the Treasury, <laughs> the Treasury Secretary the last few times have been from Goldman Sachs. <laughs> Uh, you've had, uh, I think the, I don't know if it's uh, food and agriculture, CEO Purdue, you know, you have, uh, you know, the head of uh, education, I forget which, uh, the Rye institutions, wh which ones did they run? You know, you have all these people running government who were or still are the elites. I mean, I don't see the uh, treasury secretary being, you know, a business valuation professor, you know, uh, yeah. and Rutgers professor. I don't mm -hmm. see that being the case today. You, for example, you know, or somebody qualified to do the job, I see them being, let's just take the head of the Federal Reserve. Yeah. Former Carlisle, PE guy, private equity guy. <laughs> I mean, the head of the Federal Reserve is a private equity guy. It's no, it's, you know, it's no surprise that he's out there buying all the debt that keeps his buddies alive, frankly. Yeah, has a biased perspective too. Yeah, I mean, they're not, they don't see it from the little guy's perspective. And they don't, yeah. and frankly, they're still trying to keep their things alive. You know, yeah. even, even Trump, right? I mean, this is a big, massive real estate guy. You know, I mean, it's no, it's no surprise to me that the tax plan had a lot of things that were very favorable to real estate. In it. You know, sure. there's a lot of reasons that our society has gone this way. The elites have, in effect, captured power. And it's funny when you say the elites, you're not talking about like, just a rich. We're talking about the intellectual elite. At least I am the intellectual elite and the rich. Yeah. Which means, which means it's the professors and the smart people, yeah. right? Who who have one 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 component of the world, and I think it's the rich. 
Yeah. That sort of that sort of run the asylum. Yeah. I mean, yeah. I, I mean, look, I, I hate to be so negative because I feel no, like I don't think we're being negative. We're just spotting some of the the, the problems, right? Yeah, these are these are these are in America. We're not gonna we're not gonna fix what we have going on right now unless we make these very difficult decisions. And I just, it's impossible at this point. And we've shown crisis after crisis that it's, we're only not allowing it happen more and more. And, you know, I think if we're talking to somebody and, and, they, and they say, what's the takeaway or what do I do? It's, I think you got to protect your assets. I think you have to understand that this is the way the game works, and, you know, operate within it. That's cool. So you and I disagree probably. Maybe we do. Yeah. Right. When, when the Europeans were taken over by monarchies, right, and we come out of the dark ages with the church having a heavy hand on people, what did we do? We, we boycotted, right? We, we revolted against the monarchy. We, we had revolutions in France. We had revolutions here in the, in the colonies. And we went from monarchy to republics. We created a market system because we don't want to have some king or queen having the ability to control us, right? And, and I think we're at a place that this Black Lives Matters movement is so important. I'm not a big fan of the organization, right? I am a, I am a big fan of the movement because it's yeah. highlighting some real social injustices we have in our society. Um, I see uh, some of these other movements towards uh, stakeholder theory and, you know, some of these, 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 these um, more on the academic side where we're pushing to uh, recapture justice and fairness in the market system, right? Yeah, my point, labor. yeah and yeah, and, and my point has always been, and as you look back through history, you go back 5,000 years, the individual has always come, um, come back to win, right? Yep. The individual will never allow someone to continually beat them up, take advantage of them, screw them for lack of a better term. Yeah. And, and here we are, we're being taken advantage of, yeah. And look, by the way, I, I still think that the American system, even though it's, it's awful at the moment, still the best system, but I think the American people are starting to come to come to their senses. And I think people globally are coming to their senses. And this is, this is where you and I started talking about crypto, right? Yeah. And the whole crypto and the blockchain movement. Um, for those watching, Luigi and I have, have a startup. We still have a startup that's, that's in the crypto space, but we could talk about that. But why, why don't you just share some thoughts? Because I know you're deep in the crypto space, right? Share well, some thoughts about this. Yeah, I mean, I I, I bought my first Bitcoin in uh, it was 2012. I believe it was at $900, and I think I sold it at $1,100 like five days later, um, and then it went down to 100. <laughs> uh, you know, that's kind of my first experience with it, and the reason I sold it is because. Uh, Apple Pay was announced, and I was like, "Oh, this is going to destroy this thing." And I really didn't understand the whole idea of crypto at that point. And then, as I started getting more involved, and I had a colleague at Citigroup who was very involved in the space, still a good friend of mine. Um, was, you know, I still talk to every day about this stuff. It's, I, I, I think, I think the revolt, frankly, that you were just talking about, this is one piece of it. Yeah, I, I agree. That's why. That's why I wanted to take this. Yeah. Conversation. I think, Bitcoin, yeah. I think Bitcoin, frankly, you know, it got laughed at because everybody was like, oh, you know, it's a scam. It's uh, it's used by uh, the black markets in order to, to just circumvent governments, all these sure. things. And, 
And while some of that is true, that, that it was used for those purposes. And still is used for those and purposes. Still is, and yeah. Just like cash is. Yeah. Um, you know, the actual underlying points of Bitcoin or crypto are, are, are actually liberating in nature. Um, they actually give somebody the ability to be freed by their government's oppression. So for example, if you live in Venezuela and you have a dictator who continues, continues to devalue your currency, well, now if you have an internet connection, you can take your assets and move it off to something that won't be um, um, uh, commandeered, yeah. it's taken, yeah. It won't be devalued, right? Yeah. You know, and you can do that easily. Whereas back in the day, in order to go obtain dollars or, or, or buy gold, it's very difficult. So now you have this option in Nigeria, you saw it happen. You saw it happen in Venezuela. In the United States, I think it's important because we are clearly, we've clearly made a very um, significant decision as a society that we care less about the value of our currency than we do about perpetuating the, the asset bubbles that we have. So yeah. in, in that situation, it's liberating to have the opportunity to move into something that while is a deflating, uh, a deflationary currency, or commodity, whatever you want to call it. Yeah, yeah. You know, it is deflationary in nature. It, you know, because there's a fixed supply, right? Yeah. Uh, it's different than a fiat currency from that perspective. So it is liberating. I think it's the way we evolve. We talk a lot about um, the book of the fourth turnings. Yeah. And you know, I do think that's the way our society gets out of these things. We have cycles, and right now we're at that end of the cycle where the people sure. are going to revolt, and they're going to find the way to move together as a new society. And this happens from a generational perspective. Yeah. I, I recommend anybody to, to go ahead and read that book um, written in the 90s and predicted a lot of what's going on today and what's yeah. gone on the last 20 years. So I do think that, you know, uh, crypto and Bitcoin and these type of things have the opportunity to liberate a society. And I do think they will be a force for good um, in the future because they also have the opportunity to um, increase transparency. That's yeah. something a lot of people don't understand about it. They also think, they all think that it's uh, uh, private and hidden. But, you know, the blockchain, uh, by its very nature, allows certain things to be transparent and, and yeah. removes a lot of the central institutions. And, and if we've learned anything over the past 15 years in this country, it's that we're breaking down our institutions. That's well, because they're, because what? They're, they're unfair. They're unfair. They, there's no competition. They provide zero service. Take right? the reserve, for example. I mean, yep. that is an institution that controls the currency. Yep. Bitcoin, by its very nature, has no institution that controls its currency. It has a code that was written from the very beginning. And if everybody yep. adopts it, they've agreed to the rules and the rules are the rules. I mean, in, in so many respects, it's the gold standard all over again. But this time it's it's not it's, it's what? Not clunky. It's not heavy. Yeah, 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 it's not heavy. You're not walking around with gold. But it's the gold standard all over again with a little bit more... Uh, secrecy to it, yeah. a little bit more freedom to do and spend it how you want without somebody knowing exactly where well, it's going. I, I don't know if it's more secretive than gold. I mean, you know, people just could have stored gold in their homes. I don't think there's any different than storing Bitcoin on, on, their, on a ledger. Frankly, if anything, Bitcoin eventually will be easier to create. No, what I'm talking about, so if I wanted to buy, you know, let's just say you were offering me services, I can actually send you Bitcoin yes. anonymously. Yes. And get my services delivered to me anonymously. Yes. And no one knows I did it, right? Yeah. 
I find that to be fabulous. I, I find that to be like, that's literally the hallmark of the United States is I want my freedom. Like, yeah. I don't want you, Mr. Big Government, Mr. Big Corporation to be into my business, right? That was the, that was the, the basics of, of freedom yeah. founded in 1776. Yeah, and, and I, I think that's going to occur. But I also think that the governments will use this innovation and this technology to, in fact, reduce your privacy. Maybe, maybe. And not too, not too dissimilar to, you know, when we, when we started this country, we had more freedoms. And then over time, the, the government continues to gain control and big businesses gain control. Well, well, and, then, and then we revolt and we do it all over again. Put the dollar on a blockchain. And, uh, you know, we'll be able to audit every single transaction you have. You know, you're, you won't be able to pay your electrician, you know, two grand and not pay taxes on it. They will, they will put that all on a blockchain. They will know where every dollar you have is in the future. That will happen. Maybe. Oh, it will. Maybe. Because, well, may, uh, you, you might be right. But the thing is, what government is going to do it? United States government. If I put money in, uh, in, uh, in Bitcoin, that money's not sitting in the United States. No, no, no. So that's my point, right? Like Bitcoin is, is liberating from that perspective. But I'm saying yeah. governments will take this technology, right? And they'll use that to have digital currency. They'll have no currency. Oh, sure, sure. But then, but, then, but then you have to say to yourself, what's the difference between Bitcoin and the government doing it? And if the government's going to do it, well, they're going to do the same thing all over again. So why don't I just use Bitcoin? Well, you can. The problem, uh, the problem lies that uh, you pay your taxes in dollars. Fair, right. but you're not going. But Mr. Government, you don't. You're not going to know anything about what I, what I have or I don't have, because at some point people are going to start saying taxation without representation, right? When somebody has to pay 40, 50, 60 percent in taxes. Yeah, it becomes. Right? It becomes. To, it gets to the point where it's no longer worth it. Yeah, people start cheating revolt. the system. People, yeah, cheating I, think, the system. I think crypto is a is a revolt that's naturally come from what's happened over the past 30, 40 years. Sure. And and, and we and we know it, it's really it, part of it was to to develop a, a system of currencies or uh, commodities for people in areas where they didn't trust the government, right? So, you know, formerly Russia, only, Venezuela. Oh, for sure. And we right? only off the gold standard in the 70s. This yeah, is, we did. This is not a uh, a long-standing tradition. Fiat currencies, you know. I feel like people forget no. a lot. A lot. This yeah. is this is a new experiment, you know. And clearly, we see what's happening. We see where we where, where this is going. It's it's very obvious, you know. Europe has been trying to devalue. Japan has done everything in their power to devalue the yen. Frankly, can't succeed at it. But you know, a lot of these countries in in these economies have demographic issues. That, and, and you have central banks that are trying to, to account for that. Sure. By way of currencies. And, and in China, right? So in China, crypto's huge. Well, when it, where it's allowed to be, yeah. Well, I mean, even now, even when it's, when it's, when it's being regulated and it's outlawed, there's still people buying crypto because what's happening is even the rich in China are starting to recognize that if this government turns back to its old ways, they're, they're going to take my wealth, not too dissimilar to Cuba, Venezuela, right, or Argentina. They're going to take my wealth, and all my hard work was out the window. Yeah, so it's a great diversification strategy, I think, for anybody who has assets. I don't think you put all your assets in it, but I do think you put a portion because I, I think there comes a point where, you know, if we all go to zero and these currency wars continue, you know, Bitcoin will, will, will hold value. Yeah. What do you think about the crypto companies out there? 
you know that's an interesting question you know i mean we've had a lot of experimentation i'll say over the past five years maybe four years uh, i think there's been a lot of fraud in the in, you know there's been a lot of hype there's been a lot of excitement and money money made money lost um and but i think that i i think they're trying to figure it out you know i think there's a lot of innovations that have happened the recent DeFi um, boom or the you know decentralized finance boom is I think created some really interesting innovations. I'm not exactly sure where it goes yet. Um, I can't say that I am, but I do know that, you know, they're doing things that are very, very interesting. And I think that you and I spoke about this a lot. I think that a company can use a token or a coin uh, in order to align all of its stakeholders in the right way. You know, like sure. you take the Uber example all the time, you know, I mean, imagine if uh, all these drivers were, were able to, receive the company you know the, the company or uber stock or uber token yeah. as, as rewards you know it would it would keep them incentivized to keep driving for uber right it would yeah because it has properties has properties of equity and properties of cash right well whereas now they get paid cash if uber does really well and the stock does really well you know unless they went out and bought uber stock they don't really care not really their incentives aren't really aligned so long as they don't get fired yeah so, so if we use crypto right, and we use crypto in a way that it's it literally is stock ownership. Yeah. Now we know that there's IRS issues there. We know there's SEC issues there. But if there, if we were to use crypto in a way that can be a medium of exchange and be a store of value in the sense that it's like a like it's the equity. Yeah. And it's to, to, to talk about some of these uh, companies that we've looked at decentralized yeah. autonomous companies. Uh, we, can, we can create something that is owned by the people that use the, the token, right? That work at the company. It takes all of the stuff that we've been talking about before, right? The fairness, the equity, and it, and it, and it brings that back once again to the people. Exactly. And, that, and, it, and it actually becomes more capitalistic, right? Sure. It, it's in, in a funny way, it's it's a lot of I know you I know you love this. It's a lot of Karl Marx's ideas, frankly, from like a, the uh, you know from the labor and employment side, giving them a, you know an ability to own part of the company and be part of it. It's a lot of those ideas, but in a very capitalistic yeah. and libertarian manner. I don't think anyone, including myself, would ever say that Marx didn't have really good criticisms of capitalism. Yeah, criticism. Right? <laughs> the problem is he never came up with a better solution. Right. And clearly, you know, I got I got two. I don't have just one copy of Marx's book. I have two copies here. Right. And yeah, I, I do. I agree with him. I, I agree with his criticisms. Um, you know, even Marx, when he was dying, says, I'm not a Marxist. Right. So he, he, people misunderstand. And he was just saying, look, there's got to be a better system here. There's got to be a better system. And I don't think he's wrong. And I think that what's interesting about what you mentioned was crypto, these, this idea. And it's not just crypto. It's combining all the technology, you know, the capitalist ideas, libertarian ideas, combining all these things into the way a company can run and be uh, competitive aligns everybody. And not only that, but, but it takes away some of the power from the elite that they currently hold and gives it back to the people, gives it back to the labor. Absolutely. The beauty of it all. Yeah. I mean, how many people did, did, how many people did you and I meet, right? And, and, you know, obviously many more people in the space than I do, but they're not, 
They're not the wealthy. They're not silver spoon kids that are growing up. They're, they're, they're hard. Many of them are, are immigrant Russian, right? Well, immigrant Polish. And they come here and they learn how to program and develop and they build these new platforms and they become extremely wealthy. They, um, and they, they share that, right? A lot, what I like about the whole crypto movement, is there's lots of sharing. Yeah, there's bad people and bad actors just like anywhere. But many, many of the people that were thinking about this system are all about some type of collective gain, right? Well, Indiv individual autonomy, everyone wins. Yeah, I mean, it, you almost have so much competition in the crypto market. It's, it's definitely capitalism. For example, you can take a platform, you can take Bitcoin and, yeah. fork, it, and fork it and create Bitcoin one, Bitcoin X. Sure. Meaning that like, Whereas right now, if it, I'm a, you know, if I'm Facebook, I don't allow anybody to have my algorithm. I don't have anybody to let, you know, touch my stuff. So but when you put those walls in place, you inherently reduce competition. Sure. Here, it's like, here's all my, here's, here's everything I've done. If you can make it better, go make it better. And the world will decide who made it better. And, and there's something so beautiful in that um, uh, boisterousness, frankly, yeah. where, you know, yeah. that, you know that, that transparency that I think is the way forward, you know, yeah. and, and rather than having all the equity of value, and you and I talked about this a lot, because we were like, yeah. well, how do you make, frankly, how do you make money if you're, not, if you're not holding value to the equity? Well, the token is used in that respect, and, and the masses hold it, and that's where the difference is, and, that's, and that to me is really, would really transform society if we can act in that way. Funda it's a fundamental change in the way we operate as a society fundamental change because right. right now it's all about you know protecting whatever i you know came up with yeah. whereas if instead it was here it is everybody wants to use me or you you know you, you end up you end up being forced to try to innovate yeah. more yeah i mean think about think about the when we when when someone i don't even know who that person is and we'll, we'll finish up here very shortly but you know someone invented market systems. They said, hey, we're going to create this thing called free market capitalism, and we're going to couple it with something called the Republic. Yeah. And, and these things work together. In the beginning, people went, what is this? Right? Now, I wish I was a fly on the wall back then, but I would have imagined people say, we're going to go against the king and the queen? Yeah. This can't be true, right? And, oh, that's got to be awful. You know, they're ordained by a religion, and, you know, we can't, we can't do this. So well, I think every evolution is going to have a bunch of people that are naysayers, that's true. You know, uh, someone was telling me yesterday that it was only 3% of the country, 3% of the, the colonies. I got to check this out. I'm not sure, so don't hold me to it. But somebody said to me, 3% of all of the population in the colonies were the people that picked up arms and fought for the, fought for change. Yeah. 3%. I believe it. Right? Now, I would imagine 3% of the United States population that is going after crypto Right. If, if that was the case, that's nine million people. That's a serious number of people. I would imagine it's higher than that, much higher than that, that are starting to adopt this concept of crypto and storing money in some institution, not here in the United States, that is outside of the hands of the government, outside the hands of big business. Yeah. And and it's totally autonomous. Yeah. I mean, I, I always think about Facebook as an example all the time, because, you know, right now, Everybody, you know, there's a lot of people that don't like what they, you know, some of the actions Facebook takes, you know, what they do with the, our data, sure, sure, sure. how they monetize it. Yep. Imagine, imagine if somebody could just fork Facebook. 
literally take take everything that it is, go like this, create a new Facebook too, and then the people would decide. Facebook too, but without advertisement. How many people would just like move over? Yeah. Because our society doesn't allow that. Way. Yeah. And without and without censoring people's people's what they're saying. Exactly. And, like, yeah. I think, you know, without changing the look and feel and having all yeah. the, you know legal issues, that would be that would be to me true capitalism. Yeah. And a fork for those people that are listening, a fork in, in crypto is when there's a particular crypto and the people that own it or are on the board decide that they don't like the the future of where it's headed, they decide they're going to take all of the intellectual property and go create a second. They just um, copy the code. They just copy the code and create a second entity. So now, now they're competing. Because it's all um, open source. It's all open source, but it's also it's also a, a, a system where competition is accepted. Yeah, because it's made, made the best one win. Yeah, beautiful, beautiful. So look, one of the things that uh, I, I do want to, I, I do want to uh, wrap this up because I, I don't want to take too much more of your time. But you and I, we speak a lot about uh, Posner and Weil and radical markets. Yeah. Remember that book that, uh, and I think you turned me on to that book. And I, again, my, my students are going to read this book and they have a project at the end of the semester where we're talking about how can we, how can we improve capitalism? Um, I think Weil and Posner are uh, progressive thinkers when it comes to changing market systems. Um, what, do you, what do you think about that? You know, what do you think about what they have to say in that book? You know, I, I think that their book is incredibly forward thinking. Yeah. It's a totally different way of thinking about how we can govern ourselves as a society. I mean, just take their example. I think the one example they had, um, it's, a, it's a little extreme, yeah. but one about uh, home ownership, yeah. where everybody's home is available to be purchased or sold from somebody else at any point in time. Yeah. If you set the price and the price you set determines the taxes you pay. And it's like a game. So yeah. if, if you set your home price too low, somebody can come in and just buy it from you, right? You know, so it kind of keeps everybody in check. Same thing with employment they do. Everybody's wages are out uh, and available for people to see. Yeah. You know, it doesn't allow somebody to be underpaid because the company will see that that person's talent and skills yeah. aren't being matched with their wages. So I think that these types of ideas, while I don't, well, I don't agree with the, um, you know, the execution of everything that they mentioned, I think they've started an, incre an incredible discussion. Yes. And I think that they can, those types of ideas can allow us to fix some of these problems that we have today and yeah. move forward as, as a society, you know, not socialism, not capitalism, whatever you want to call it. It's, it's market. A, new, a new thing, just new, new system. New thing. And there's no work for it, I think. Yeah. A new system. One of the, one of the ideas that they have in the uh, in the book, which I find to be brilliant, um, and I'm I'm kind of very upset I didn't think about it, is um, is their concept of uh, being paid for your your data. Yeah. Right. So we're we're marching into this new phase of of information technology. Let's call it artificial intelligence. And the only way artificial intelligence corporations operate is if people like you, me, and the rest of everybody that's watching this. Volunteer, volunteer to give our data to somebody that then takes that data and makes some kind of product or service, right? Mm -hmm. And their solution was, well, if the company is making profit based upon your data that you provided, then you should get paid for it. Yeah. Not, not too dissimilar, right, to, to Facebook. If Facebook's making all this money because you use the product, well, then maybe there should be a little bit of those profits that aren't just set back to the shareholders. Once again, 
the rich are winning, but who's using Facebook? It's not only the wealthy that are using Facebook, it's the middle class and it's lower income classes that are using it. And they're getting, yeah, okay, they get a good experience. But why not, right? If this is a crypto play, they would be gaining, right? If they were only cryptocurrency. Yeah, I mean, so, if, every, if every time they like something, they got a little fraction of a piece of Facebook token. Beautiful. And over time, the more and more you were using this service and contributing to it, you know, you had the opportunity to accrue value. You know, we when we set up these, these let's call it a tech 2.0, after, yeah. after the actual initial tech bubble, you had all these large companies after the iPhone was created, and all these apps like Facebook and Google, um, what they did is they provided you something for free. Yeah. And just that was a huge lure. It was like, oh, wow, I get to use this for free? Great. Like, who cares if they send me some ads? I just won't look at them. Yeah. Well, they, they, that's become a little bit more predatory in nature now. Sure. And, and I think that uh, what you mentioned is exactly right. The users now have provided and created this thing. And, you know, frankly, you know, are getting, you know, uh, nothing for it. Well, they're getting experience only, and but yeah. they're also getting some bad things happening to them. Sure, manipulation and things of those sorts. And we also, and you saw social dilemma, right? And scary, yeah. obviously, very scary to me. Uh, I would imagine pretty scary to you. Yeah. So I agree. Listen, we, let's wrap this up. But I, I agree with you that um, markets are broken. We need to fix it. Yeah. And, you know, I, I, I teach a business ethics course, as you know, and in that business ethics course, I'm always asking our students to revisit, think about how can we not only make our corporations better, but how can we make the system better? Right. Yeah. And we're going to read why we're going to read Posner and Wiles book and we're going to explore that some more. But um, I agree with you. It's time. Right. Something's coming. Something's bubbling up. We, I could feel it. You could probably feel it. Uh, I hope it's not too painful for the country. But uh, I do think it's now time to, to consider real change, go after fairness, go after justice. Um, maybe, maybe, Luigi, we get, we get to a place where we come to our senses. I think it's, it's your generation. Um, it's the generation after you that um, my students who are starting to see that the system's probably broken, the system needs to change. It needs to change quick, right? Yeah. Cool. I think so. Yeah. So listen, just uh, last thing, if there's one thing that you can say to somebody in college today, because that's who this podcast is mainly geared towards. But if there was someone in college that, um, you know, you wanted to share one thing, if you had one piece of information to share with them, what would it be? I think I would say that um, whatever you do first, or second or third, don't assume that that's what you have to do in your life. You know, hmm. I think it's be open-minded. You know, once you get out there, do something first, just get in there, do something, learn something, see how it feels. And then just have an open mind to, to, to see where you succeed and where you don't succeed, see where your strengths and your weaknesses are and see where that aligns best. I feel like a lot of people, they, they're afraid to just try things try things, you know, yeah. experience the things, learn, you know, and, uh, and I think once you do that, you'll figure out um, where you belong more, or you're, you'll learn it as you go. I don't know if any of us really know where we belong yeah. you know, at any point in our life, but I think you get, you know, little by little, you learn about yourself and what your skills are and, and where you can add value and serve others in the world. Yeah. Awesome. Awesome, man. 
Well, thank you so much for being on this. I know we went over time, but once again, your insights, you know, I, 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 I tend to pay very close attention to some of the things you say. Your insights are remarkable, and I'm sure my students will benefit tremendously from this. Thank you, Chris, and, and I appreciate the time and appreciate uh, having the conversation. All right, buddy. We'll take care. Thanks, Chris. See you, man.